0: I guess our story begins before 9-11, because um, I was uh, uh, leading, working in the Department of Justice for the entire year with the new Bush administration. So I had been responsible for the transition of the Department of Justice from the Clinton administration to the Bush administration, meaning that I was leading a team of about 40 people who were essentially auditing DOJ and all of its components and compiling summaries of everything going on. And, um, and the idea is that these summaries would be given to the new folks coming in as the Bush appointees and give them some sense of where are all the um, greatest concerns, what are the things that might uh, blow up in the first 90 days and so forth. And I was also working closely with John Ashcroft, who was a senator at that time, and he had been nominated to be attorney general. And um, I was um, coordinating his confirmation effort, uh, particularly his Senate um, confirmation hearing. And um, I was teamed up with someone who was a big-time lobbyist in Washington as these transitions work. Um, And he was responsible for lobbying the senators. I was responsible for getting... Ashcroft ready for his confirmation hearing. So um, on um, January 20th, 2001 uh, George Bush got sworn into office and a sort of skeletal crew of us were now responsible for managing running the Department of Justice. And um, interestingly uh, Bob Mueller, who was at that time the United States Attorney in San Francisco, um, had been appointed by the Clinton administration to that chief prosecutor position, we called him to D.C. to help have be the temporary deputy attorney general while we were waiting for the deputy attorney general to be confirmed, which wouldn't happen until May. That's important because Bob Mueller got to know President Bush during that time as the acting deputy attorney general and later because of that um, President Bush hired him as the FBI director which was in the summer. He has confirmation hearing in July And I was responsible for coordinating his confirmation hearing, too. And in August, he had prostate cancer um, uh, surgery, and he started one week before 9-11 as the FBI director. So his story is fascinating as well, but it was something I was closely connected with um, during that time. So uh, Brenda uh, was certainly very familiar with um, what our lifestyle would be like, and at that point it was about 18 years of Washington life, and I had been through the impeachment process of where, where Bill Clinton, and, which was a long, arduous experience. And again, Brenda was always kind of caring for the family, keeping us all together with the four kids while I was engaged in these, you know, stressful adventures. And so we were—we really had, as so many Washington families do, we had settled into that lifestyle, we were pretty comfortable with this idea that, yes, my husband's downtown right now, and he's on Capitol Hill, and he's involved in impeaching the President of the United States, and I'm trying to get my kids to soccer practice, right? And we just have always kept up well uh, in the evenings after work, talking about what happened that day, and um, we had good routines as a family in order to be able to stay well connected in the midst of all these different things, and that allowed business of the family to go on, even while uh, life can get pretty exciting. But then that, again, is not unfamiliar to Washington families. You just kind of understand that goes with a calling. So that Tuesday morning, um, we had our routine, which was that um, our two youngest children, two daughters, went to a Christian school in Springfield, Virginia. And we lived in Fairfax area, Fairfax Station, Virginia. And the routine was that, I drove those two girls to their school in Springfield, dropped them off, and then headed up 395 to downtown Washington and to the Department of Justice. So on Tuesday morning, bright and early, um, the commute begins. um, And the older two were going to the high school. And um, um, I dropped the girls off. And I'm driving into DC. I'm heading to the Department of Justice. And it's about and I dropped them off somewhere around you know 815 I think they had to be there on 8:20 or something like that um, I'm dropping them off just in the nick of time and then up I go 395 into the traffic and as I'm pulling into the Department of Justice garage I'm listening to NPR it was my routine to listen to the news in the morning uh, they report on the first plane a plane has hit the World Trade Center in New York City. And, of course, now I'm a, I'm a senior Justice Department official, so some things make your alarm go off immediately. Some things don't necessarily because you're thinking when you hear a report of that sort. Well, that could be anything, and most likely some really tragic story of a pilot who got confused and ran into a, a building. And so I'm pulling into the garage. I'm hearing this report I'm wondering what that's all about. I'm the principal associate deputy attorney general, which means that now we have Larry Thompson as the deputy attorney general. John Ashcroft is the attorney general. Uh, Larry Thompson's the deputy attorney general. That's the job I would have later in 2005, but in 2001, I'm the principal associate. So it means I'm his kind of um, lead um, assistant. And I'm sharing a sort of an office suite with him. And so my routine would be to walk into the office and it would be easy just to walk into his office because our offices were um, connected by a little little hallway. And I walk into his office to say have you heard about this plane? And he says there's a second plane. And so now the two of us, Deputy Attorney General, Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General, are watching uh, the television in his office and we're learning that now two planes have hit the World Trade Center, and we realize, oh, this is an act of terrorism. And meanwhile, Larry Thompson's son is a financial advisor who works in the World Trade Center. So he is um, preoccupied with the safety of his son at that point. Of course, none of us knew at 9, 9.15, whatever, that the tower would collapse. So, um, so we're looking at each other, and we're wondering, what should we be doing right now? I mean, what is the best thing for DOJ to be doing? John Ashcroft wasn't in Washington. He was in Milwaukee for what was called school day. That's why George Bush was in Tampa reading a book to children because all the cabinet were asked to go off and visit schools. And so Ashcroft, General Ashcroft, went to Milwaukee to read to his children in school. So just as George Bush was having his ear whispered into by Andy Card, others were being told, there's a terrorist attack. So now the Attorney General of the United States is trying to get back to Washington, D.C. in his FBI plane. He has to be escorted by fighter jets to come back to Washington. That unfolded later in the morning. So now there's so it's just Larry Thompson in charge, and I'm um, in a sense kind of the de facto number three because we don't have a what's called the Associate Attorney General, which is the third person in the DOJ leadership chain. Um, so Larry learns very quickly that we um, oh and in, in and so, in those moments that he and I are trying to figure out what 's going on, the Pentagon is hit, and now America's under attack, and we 're trying to um, you know uh, think about all the details that need to follow from there and Larry Thompson is one of the individuals who's told to leave d c and be removed to a location outside of washington d c for a continuity of government, so key figures are taken somewhere outside of dc in case all of dc is under attack but i was left behind (laughs) i was the senior person at that point so i go to the department of justice command center which is at the top of the building and it's just like you might imagine you know a command center with lots of computers and tvs on the walls and high tech and um and and this command center now i have a sort of a skeletal crew of DOJ leaders, we'd gone through the halls, the seven floors of the building, and told everyone to leave the building because we didn't know if our building was going to be a target or not. And so I sat there on that top floor. And I was telling Brenda last night, and remind reminder because I told her before, that um, as I sat there in that command center that morning, and Flight 93 was unaccounted for, we knew it was still in the sky, we didn't know where it was. Um, I thought, hmm, that plane could be headed to D.C., and it could be headed to the Department of Justice, and this could be my last morning alive. And I remember feeling a certain peace, which I thought in those moments is always a wonderful thing to feel, um, and uh, reassuring um, from a spiritual perspective. So um, um, that was happening, again, up until you know, 10 o'clock. Um, I'm now in the command center, nine thirty, ten o'clock, and and Now we have all this information coming in from different agencies, as these command centers have, you know, tend to work. And I'll never forget that I'm learning about the. I'm getting handed pieces of paper uh, again with this sort of skeletal crew of leaders with me. I'm getting handed a piece of paper with information. I'm getting a piece of paper from the FAA, which indicates that all the planes domestically have been accounted for except for one and all international flights have been diverted. And I'm looking at all these international flights, and all of them are, whether they're coming from, you know, the Netherlands or Paris or whatever, and they say, Gander, Gander, Gander. And I, I look at someone who was, uh, received this information from the FAA, and I say, Gander? What's that all about? And they say, oh, they're all being redirected to Gander, Newfoundland, which, of course, has become a famous story. And, um... Uh, and that's you know I, that was kind of a um, real time experience to see that, that that diversion of all of all air travel. So, meanwhile, Brenda's back. Um, and, and one last piece of information before I toss the ball over to her: uh, I've been nominated to be the U.S. attorney in Eastern Virginia. So I'm going to become the chief prosecutor as soon as the Senate gets around to the confirmation of U.S. attorneys keep in mind that um, when a new administration starts, um, nominees are sent to the Hill, but the Senate not, uh, confirms them only so quickly. And especially if, it's, if the Senate is controlled by the other party, so at that time the Democrats controlled the Senate, um, they don't necessarily work fast. So, um, And U.S. attorneys aren't as important in the confirmation hierarchy as the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General. In fact, Biden's Nominees to be U.S. attorney are just now; some of them getting confirmed, and a lot of them, you know, haven't been. They have a Democrat Senate to help them get through, so it takes a while. So I've been nominated in those months preceding 9/11 to leave that job as the pay dag, the principal associate deputy attorney general, and go out to Virginia and be the U.S. attorney. And we were looking forward to that, and um, we, um, and so. Brenda was already um, involved a bit on in anticipating this transition that I'm going to be making to Virginia as the prosecutor. So that's the scene as of that morning. And so do you want to pick it up from there?
1: Sure. So uh, I had an appointment with a, a staff person in um, policy, U.S. attorney to be office, and uh, we were supposed to actually discuss decorating the office, which sounds so trivial uh, now looking back on it, but uh, she called me an hour before our appointment and, and informed me of what was going on, and I didn't have my TV on or anything, so I didn't know, and so I turned it on, and as we were speaking, I think the second plane hit, and then we both knew that it was terrorism. And so she said, well, we won't be, you know, we'll we'll talk later. (laughs) So after that, um, I can't remember exactly, I've talked to my one friend um, that was most important that day to me, other than Paul, who was very important. Um, But we weren't in touch, Paul and I were not in touch at this point yet. And so I went over. My friend's uh, husband worked in the Pentagon. And many, many people in Washington have friends who work in the Pentagon. So um, I was concerned for her husband and what was going on. She was in touch with her husband. He was you know, letting her know that he was fine. Um, she was trying to call the school and let her children know because children didn't have cell phones at the time. And so she did that, and then she actually went to the grocery store and came back, <laughs> and I helped her unpack her groceries. And I brought over. She had just moved in the week before. She had been in Washington before. That's how we were friends. And she went. She was a church friend, and um, her kids were same ages as our kids, our four kids. And um, so uh, she was really familiar with the whole Washington routine. She was kind of a um, seasoned. Uh, Military spouse, she, you know, was very calm throughout the whole thing, but her television wasn't set up yet. So silly thing! I brought over my little rabbit ears TV, and we watched, you know, what was going on because I kind of thought she should see. But not necessarily; I didn't want her to see the Pentagon thing, but you know, the whole idea. And um, then, um, since then, I've caught up with her, and she was telling me, just as a side note, that her husband's car was parked in the opposite side of the Pentagon. All of their employees he worked for the um, the head of the Air Force. He was like a uh, big deal I forget his actual title, but he was a sec yeah so the secretary of the Air Force he was like his number one guy so um, he was like my, I told you they just moved there a week before, so his office, his um, parking space was on the opposite side of the building, but all of his staff were parked right below. Where that um, plane went in. So none of his staff could go home because they couldn't go get their cars and the public transportation was kind of stopped. So he took them all home personally and it took him nine hours to get everybody home. But anyway, that was just a little side thing that people in Washington, especially Christians, do for each other. So, um, you know, she and I uh, were in touch with our kids. Our kids all got sent home. The schools, you know, were all let out. Um, and then we just kept the TV on at our house the entire rest of the day. I've since asked my kids, you know, do they remember it being a particularly stressful day? Well, I don't keep the TV on all day long, so I think that was a big sign. And then Paul was eventually telling us what he knew. So he, I told my friend that he knew that the fourth plane had gone down in Shanksville, and that was the last plane to be accounted for, and so we knew there weren't going to be any more planes. So at that point, um, you know, I was uh, thankful that Paul was probably going to be, you know, okay for the rest of the day, although very stressed. And then, you know, he didn't get home until really, really late that night, and then the kids all had off school the next day, too. So anyway... um, that was basically what I was doing that particular yeah. day. so
0: picking it up then at um, mid-morning, late morning. So I'm at that command center. I don't remember us talking, but we probably touched base. But John Ashcroft gets back to D.C. with this Air Force escort, and he's on his way over to Department of Justice, and he's told, well, Bob Mueller, the FBI director, is over at the FBI's... Strategic Intelligence and Operations Center, which is their own kind of Disney-esque, you know, high-tech uh, command center. And um, he says to his um, uh, FBI protective detail, take me straight to the FBI, and then I'm told go over across the street because, you know, i Pennsylvania Avenue, DOJ, and the FBI going across the street from each other. Go across the street and join the attorney general and the FBI director, and that's where we we're going to set up our headquarters. So I left the command center at DOJ and walked across the street to the FBI's command center, and that's where I was parked for the next um, week and a half. So what happens then is Ashcroft's there, Mahler's there. We're in a room about the size of this room, a room that holds maybe comfortably a dozen people at the most, and a big conference table. And at that conference table, for the next, again, several days... We're just there as long as we can physically be there each day. Uh, Just making plans about what new laws we might need, what what funds we need from Congress in order to be able to bring more agents into the mix, Um, uh, where there are leads, who's been arrested where. Um, We have this fellow in Minnesota. His name is Zacharius Massawi. He was trying to fly planes. Um, Curiously, he wanted to know how to take off but not land. He was arrested and, and held um, in jail in Minnesota um, prior to 9-11. He's still there. Who is this guy? Of course, that becomes my big case for the next four and a half years. But that week, I'm just learning that there is this person of that, of that um, sort. And we're wondering, because at this point, you can imagine, we don't know if there are other forms of attack. We know the airplanes were all accounted for, but are people going to start bombing, um, you know, are we going to have um, suicide bombers in the subways? I mean, what, what, what other aspects of this attack could there be? So, as the day went on, we were more and more comforted that we weren't seeing any other suspicious or hearing about other reports of, of, of attack of one sort or another. And um, John Ashcroft had a conversation with Senator Patrick Leahy, who's the chair in the Judiciary Committee. And Senator Leahy said, What can I do to help you all? And John Ashcroft said, well, here are some things. One of them is, could you confirm our U.S. attorney nominees in some key areas so that we can get going on our prosecutions if we have some? And so three days later, 9-14, Senate confirms me to be the U.S. attorney, and I'm now able to go down to Alexandria, Virginia, and set up my new office. It took me a week because during the week of the... Um, 14th, 15th, 17th that week um, I'm still helping in that room trying to organize the, the department's response and I'm in particular, uh, particularly responsible for lining up the financial needs the department had with Capitol Hill to get new resources so I'm in the middle of all that I start on the 24th and my very first day first thing I did was go to the Pentagon and and get a briefing on the ground. The fires are out, but it was still kind of smoldering, and I'm getting a briefing on everything that they know at that point um, because this is sort of my crime scene. This is the this is the part of the, the uh, um, attack that occurred in eastern Virginia. And um, it was a memorable day because um, as I was being briefed by the FBI on the ground there outside the Pentagon... An agent walks up and says, we just found um, from our video cameras outside the building, we just found new tape um, on the morning of the attack. And they hadn't even quite figured out what they had. And so we went into this trailer, and they turned it on. And we actually watched in slow motion the nose of the airplane actually penetrate the wall of the building. That's what the tape was able to catch. So everybody was stunned just from standing there watching this together. Um, and so then we went to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Brenda actually came over for that first day as well in Alexandria to kind of have the formal arrival greeting thing. And then uh, that district includes Richmond and Norfolk, and so I kind of made the loop that day to visit those other offices. Well, um, fast forward here. Um, so now as the Patriot Act comes into play and are Um, new, efficient sort of investigative tools, Eastern Virginia becomes kind of a hub for getting subpoenas and doing all kinds of things to investigate 9-11, and then by the Christmas time Mr. Karish Masali is transferred to our custody, and now he's going to be our central prosecution for the 9-11 crimes. He's someone who is supposed to be piloting a fifth plane, and in my remarks I'm going to give um, in the 9-11 ceremonies, uh, anniversary celebrations. We have. I'm going to talk more about you know Masawi, but that was the that was what the case was all about. Is a um, a person trained, selected by Bin Laden, trained by uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to be one of the hijackers to pilot a fifth plane, but they couldn't get a crew into the country to join him, and he was of course arrested, so that never came off. But that was that was essentially then became the 9/11 case, and again it lasted. Four and a half years. Um, and then uh, during the, that next year, um, we had, a within a, a month or two after 9 11, we had all of the acting United States attorneys and some who had been confirmed um, uh, subsequently show up to DC and we met with the president and we, and Attorney General Ashcroft outside the Pentagon gave us this um, pep talk about doing our jobs and being vigilant to prevent further attacks. Um, we were back and forth to New York because the, the World Trade Center um, location became part of our case, and we had kind of a joint team from New York with the Eastern Virginia team, and so I was back and forth to New York a bit, and we had an, another conference there. We had a one-year celebration at the Pentagon with the president because he promised to get the re- um, Pentagon repaired completely, Within one year. So we had a one year uh, celebration together outside the building. So it was that kind of year. And uh, the family, um, you know, could we get my reports about what was going on next? And they were, of course, very um, interested in the fact that dad was now the U.S. Attorney and what does that mean, you know, and learning all about the office. And um, we had a swearing in ceremony, and Bob Muller came over to speak at it. And so it was quite um, a, a memorable time. Uh, But 9-11 and the aftermath and all the um, victims that uh, suffered became the focus of my energies and my team's energies because since this was kind of the 9-11 prosecution, the thousands of victims had to be managed in some fashion and have a chance to tell their stories. And so I spent a lot of time over the next couple of years meeting with victims' families and hearing who who was this person who died that morning? Tell us more about his or her story. And families were very pleased to be able to have an opportunity to do that. So,
1: you know, as Paul said, we've been there for 18 years, and so you just gradually over time get used to the workload uh, becoming greater or you know reduced depending on what was going on. So with the impeachment, for instance, Paul was gone a lot. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I. Uh, You know, always wish that I could have more time with my husband. It's a great time now because he lives, you know, I get to see him. His work is right one minute down the road. Um, But yeah, that was a very hard time. Our kids were becoming teenagers, you know, and they had many, many activities. But Paul was actually really always great about trying he would have much preferred being with the children actually so we always joked about you know i should have had a career or something because you know he he would have loved to be the stay-at-home dad if he could have but um so he tried still because i have them all on my calendar he's tried i told him oh you were uh, you were playing men's basketball did you know that did you get to go to that you know it was probably like a church league or something you know Various things like that. So he was trying to be as much as possible a normal person, and he didn't work on um, weekends if he couldn't, if he, if he could get out of work on Saturday especially, and then ne- never really on Sunday. He didn't work on Sunday. So we always saw him, and our kids were used to it. They had other friends um, who, like I told you, a lot of people worked at the Pentagon, with a lot of military families in Northern Virginia, and... Um, so it was a big deal. Don't get me wrong. This is way bigger you know, than some of the other things in the past. But um, it wasn't overwhelming. And we felt a lot of support from other families that we knew from school and that kind of thing. There was a man, um, actually, who was in the Pentagon who um, was burned. He lived. And he, he was um, part of the church where our kids went to school. The school was attached to a church. And we prayed for him regularly, and he did live through that, and he went on to become a state senator in texas and um, he wrote a book about you know what happened to him and so we heard a lot of really interesting stories, and our kids heard those too and um, yeah, we talked about it a lot you know around the dinner table. remember
0: um, when they came, I was trying to think of what affected the family, and one of the things that was um, interesting is so we're prosecuting these terrorists and I'm doing these press conferences and it occurs to Department of Justice security folks that maybe the U.S. attorney might be at risk with all this sort of high profile stuff, right? So we came, they came and they put us this, this really oh, yeah. high end security system in our house to the point where it was very annoying, right? Because it would go off all the time if anything moved. And so it was a motion detector you know, um, door opening kind of thing, and the family was like, "Oh, here we go!" You right. know, and that was even before the deputy attorney general job, where I had this security detail. This was just the U.S. attorney job, where they right. they put in this high tech system, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was things like that that would remind the family, uh, life is not exactly normal. Yeah. You know, we we do have to always kind of think about: Do we arm the house? Or do we not arm the house? Yeah. And do we feel at risk or not at risk? Yeah. And um, I used to say to folks when um, they asked me about that. That I didn't really feel very threatened because I knew that the, um, kai kind of wanted to knock out bridges and tunnels and not like take off one person at a time. That was a waste of their energies. So um, I was more actually nervous about the gangs that we were prosecuting at the same time. The, we did a lot of we were like the lead office in prosecuting the MS13 in uh, the El Salvadorian gang, and the, we wanted to just rid them completely from Virginia and. Um, I would say to folks, I am worried about those guys, actually. <laughs> that's a pretty mean crew. And uh, so um, it was nice to have the security system for any reason. But, um, yeah, we would... I also joke about how kids are interesting about what they pay attention to and what they don't pay attention to. So their dad was you know, involved in all these prosecutions, John Walker Lind and Robert Hansen, and we were doing press conferences. And, you know, I, I think they were mildly minimally interested in what was going on. And then we prosecuted Ralph Sampson, who was a famous basketball player. Uh, And we used a um, uh, a law that um, was relatively unused for failure to pay child support. This man had lots of children that he wasn't supporting. And... um, and it was on ESPN. And my son was like so excited that his dad was on ESPN. And I'll never forget that. Do you, you were on ESPN. Did you know that? I said, Joe, I was on TV like all last year. <laughs> like, I was on ESPN. Uh, between that and being on The Daily Show when Stephen Colbert put a, um, a little um, bandito face, I mean, my kids were over the moon about that. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting just again how children accommodate these things and how Washington families just become so um, used to it. I mean, I cannot say enough about what Brenda's uh, Brenda's point about Pentagon families. Um, you, uh, and it may just be particularly because between church and a Christian school, there are even like a, a predominance of military families. Mm-hmm. So everybody feels like their lives are disrupted By the events, generally speaking, and uh, this friend that Brenda talked about—I mean, Bill Chambers became a two-star general in the Air Force. Um, Anna Chambers and
1: um, Will and
0: and Emily—they all came to Grove City College. Their dad was deployed to Afghanistan to be the lead of the, um, uh, like, the chief of staff of the um, Afghan forces for a year. You know, and that—that was just.
1: After nine yeah. eleven,
0: yeah. After yeah, mm-hmm. it just that this was lifestyle in uh, mm-hmm. in our world, mm-hmm. and uh, we all tried to be maintain normalcy. football. Mm-hmm. So
1: One thing I was going to say was uh, particularly sad and interesting was when we did go to um, the World Trade Center after um, it was safe to go there and go down in the pit, and we were able to observe them looking for remains and. Um, It's really sad, but it's also really interesting to see how America really values human life and people wanted anything at all they could have, you know, a memory of their loved one. And they would stop every time they found anything and have a little mini ceremony down there. And um, I was just really grateful to get to see that because a lot of those people did that for months and months and months. months. Eventually, they took the re- all of what was left and took it over to an island, and then they finished doing all that it, over it, there. It
0: ended at Staten Island, yeah. Yeah,
1: as okay. they were rebuilding, you know, that. They thing.
0: sorted through the gravel yeah. by hand to find the slightest, mm-hmm. slightest evidence of human remains mm-hmm. so they couldn't miss it. And any piece of human remain became the occasion for some type of quick um, Uh, regard, even um, sort of ceremony. Mm -hmm. And it went on and on and on all day long. Mm -hmm. And I followed, and Brenda, I think you're with me, we followed the movement of that debris from the pit to the truck, from the truck to the barge, from the barge to the island. And in every step of the way, there was never a corner of the truck that was left with a little bit of debris. It was Cleaned out, perfectly clean, because they didn't want the possibility of anything associated with a human being to be neglected or cast aside. It was mm-hmm. fascinating. Mm-hmm. This went on and on and on until the entire six-story deep pit was completely cleaned out. I was down there one time with mud up to the middle of my calves. Um, I remember walking down, you know, Lower East Lower Manhattan. Looking for a shoeshine guy because I had caked model over my shoes, and I found a guy. and He's, whoa, where have you been? I said, don't ask. Her. But, uh, but yeah, it's, um, it was that kind of uh, experience. So, we we were we were regularly reminded of what had happened through these different uh, experiences, and uh, and then again, trying to communicate that to our kids in different ways, and so forth. So all of us should be. And some of us have the occasion to be more, more reminded of the need to be um, n- uh, managing a narrative for all that we experience in life. In other words, a narrative biblically that brings us peace because we see that the world is not out of control. It's not chaos. God has a plan. His history is unfolding according to it. Um and that all things are under his control. Hardest things, best things, they're all under his sovereign care, and, um, and according to his perfect plan. And that um, the Christian is never alone, and, and a number of other related truths that are critically important. And again, they're kind of a narrative that you learn in life to hold fast to. You know, we, we went through the experience of losing our son to cancer. In 2012, so you know we've had different kinds of events in our lives that have um, been we, where we've been dependent on that narrative in order to be able to carry on. And for us, it's been very um, real and been very useful and and true. But the, you put your finger on an interesting point, which is um, not everybody I was talking to understood that same narrative and had those same comforts. And it wouldn't have been appropriate for me just to be on a whim, trying to force some kind of faith on people as they share their tragic stories and seem like they're still suffering and they have no closure. So that's, that's especially sad. Um, and, and so in that sense, you live in a world like that, you live with fallenness all around you. And the reality of the fall is more present and perhaps for other people in their lives. And being a prosecutor for much of my life, I mean, I was around, you know, the fruits of the fall constantly. Uh, so you get a little bit hardened in the sense that you get a little bit used to um, uh, tragedy and um, and and uh, heartbreak and, and death and, and so forth. Of course, you have to be very careful not to get too used to it so that your empathies are fully at, at work. Uh, and we had a great victim assistance team of people who just oozed empathy and never seemed run out of it, and that was such a blessing in our office. Um, but again, our conviction is that it's so important for people um, at the earliest point in life to get clear on, on what they believe, and then to have that routinely, weekly, nurtured through the preaching of the word in church and getting really clear and just exactly, be reminded constantly of these truths that bring great comfort in their, the, the, the real story. And and that was our foundation. And I really you know, think Grove City College played a big part for Brenda and me because we met our junior years. We were both very excited about our faith and we just sort of set our path together on that being a foundation that we wanted to continue to nurture strong as we went through law school and went to Washington DC and saw, and in some ways, maybe the Lord brought more challenges or allowed more challenges to come to our lives because he knew we were prepared more for it and we could, we could handle, um, some things that might be more difficult. But yeah, that's how you go through it. You, you know um, the truth. You hold fast to it. Um, if you can be of any help to others in that regard, you look for those opportunities. But of course, you recognize that those are going to be limited. And, um, and then you witness how people are, are managing that for themselves. Uh, and, and bringing any word of comfort is, is still of great value, even if it's not of the deepest, you know, kind of spiritual comfort that they they really need. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: and I think that that's beautifully said. Um, I, I just, fr- from a wife and mother perspective, um, we just shared with our kids how important it was to study the Bible, to know what it means, um, that it's real, the story is not a myth, um, that, you know, that God is... Real, He did send his son Christ, that Christ endured even more suffering than um, the folks in 9-11. There's always somebody who has it worse, if you can believe that. And um, then to pick a good church where actually they're teaching you this stuff. Because when you're in church on Sunday morning, you're just kind of um, prepared to listen. You might not be like in the moment of tragedy, right? At that moment, it says pause. It's a little pause for you in the week to actually just... Take in material that is helpful to you in the future. And sometimes you're learning it when it's not a tragedy, and then later it comes back to you and you can really apply it. And then to put yourself with people who are like-minded, it doesn't mean your whole world has to be filled with them, but they kind of remind you if you lose your own mind because of the emotions, you know, being so high. um, Oh, yeah, that's right. Those are the truths that I know and have believed and have uh, the God has been faithfully in the past and he will be in the future and so that um, it's, it's really a true it's very real, it's a real help to you, so yeah. anyway that's why we emphasize those, even with the students here at Grove City
0: yeah.
1: you hate to say that you, ha- you hate to bring up anything sad or negative with students because they're so full of joy they come here, they're so happy they're going to have so much fun everything's very positive So to even inject anything about, well, you should know this stuff because someday, you don't even want to say that. But that is true. And so you try to say, just sit up and pay attention, you know, and it's so true. Then when you're, people have said to us many, many times like, oh, if I was in that situation, I would not have been able to handle it. And what we say to them is, no, if you know the Lord, you will, he will bring you what you need for that moment. And by the way, it kind of goes away later. Like at those moments, you're just really into reading special things and people encouraging you. And then when everything gets good again, it's you know a scriptural thing that we think we don't need the Lord anymore. It's not that you lose your faith. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that you you don't cling to those things quite <laughs> as deeply, and so you miss that almost. You just kind of think, "Wow, I, that was a really special time," um, but. Anyway, I yeah. think those are
0: all very important things. Yeah. And you don't know when windows. back to nine eleven, the morning of I mean it was I think what makes nine eleven so uh, riveting is it was such a normal, beautiful September morning. It was the weather was gorgeous. It was, you know, low seventies, no humidity, blue skies, a routine day, a Tuesday. If there's ever a day of the week that is like Screams routine. It's Tuesday, yeah. right? Yeah. Tuesday is the most n- n- inconspicuous day of the week. Exactly. we celebrates Tuesday, yeah. and uh, and uh, you, and so you're just trudging along. Uh, but you're trudging along on a day that is encouraging. And if you wanted to find some joy in just a sunshiny day, well, that day might have provided it. But the problem was you just never know when something might happen, mm-hmm. and. Um, one of the things that I fear is that it's human nature to avert your eyes from those things and let your guard down mm-hmm. and um, many a time I've been sitting in the Senate or the House at a hearing or something about anti-terrorism well after 9/11 and I'm listening to members going on and on and whatever their particular um, uh, spiel might be at that moment and I'm I just want to say, controlling everything I have as a witness at a hearing or something, to say, have you flown into New York lately and looked out the window? Because if you have, you've seen that there were two tall towers, the tallest buildings in um, the country, aside from maybe the one in Chicago, and um, they're gone. I mean, they're gone. And, that's, and the experience of, those, of the collapse of those towers was horrific. Never, we can't forget that we cannot forget that and that was a patient deliberate well-prepared attack that could happen again that um we like to think that we are being vigilant and we are uh, in ways we weren't before then but it's 20 years and so uh, it's a it's about a nation being ready it's about a person being ready and you get ready in different ways but um that's why these things are important to uh, Mark, see if we can benefit from it. There were years in the span of 20 that were probably more um, gripping uh, or more um, impactful because I was physically uh, closer to um, the key things that might remind me, You know, uh, whether it was five years later and I was deputy attorney general or 10 years later and I'm still in D.C. practicing law and so forth. Um,
1: um, and when they opened Shanksville, the museum or however yeah, that, that, was well, that, was, yeah. that,
0: that was a huge moment for me personally when I was invited to speak at, at the Flight 93 Memorial because I had not been there and so now um, these names of victims and these names of the terrorists and everything else that I had so like they were deeply ingrained in my thinking and had kind of slipped away a bit over time We're now all kind of rushing back Uh, for me. It was really moving. Um, But um, I think the way that the human mind works is that uh, you, you move along through a large portion of your life experiencing things and processing them, but there's this sort of forward motion. And I think there comes a time later when you have more of an opportunity to reflect. And that's nice because if you were constantly living in the past... I'll trying to accomplish something today, you'd be a little immobilized. So later on, you're allowed to sit and in a rocking chair and think about those things. And so I'm now beginning to sort of process some things that were from years and years ago.
1: Well, also, the silly thing, but we went to Toronto to see the, uh, the musical about Gander, yeah. which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. They made an actual musical of that little town and how they received all those airplanes and yeah. those people. And, and that,
0: that brought like tears people. to my eyes. And yeah. I was very emotionally impacted by that musical because, uh, and that was just a few years ago we went there because, um, again, I had kind of put some of those emotions in a box and just kind of left them there. And the musical does an interesting job of, um, of, um, bringing out the horrors of the day and, and, and the fact that people couldn't get back to their families and, um, and what their families were experiencing. I remember this story in that musical of someone whose loved one is has died in the attack back in the U.S. And uh, that person stuck up in gander. And, yeah, so I remember sitting there being very struck by that emotionally. Um, so you you have these moments, I think, is what, what happens. Um, I wish, if I could have my one wish, it would be, to be with the people I was with at that time, and you know, just a kind of relaxed, you know, kind of meal or something. We're all just kind of hanging around together, like because there, there was an intensity of relationships that um, uh, was very special. And then, unfortunately, when you're in, in service, you have these intense relationships, and then they're done you move on to something else and you never see those people again unless it's some kind of reunion thing or whatever but I mean there are people from the U.S. Attorney's Office who I haven't seen for a long time and we were really bonded I mean we were just day in long days you know back and forth trying to figure things out and having really significant conversations and yeah it was it was really special um, so that's something that I think um, um would be a real blessing to be able to do that, and unfortunately, I'm not aware of any kind of opportunity like that. So um, maybe I have to organize something. On them. But um,
1: yeah, and I think what you what you alluded to earlier is that uh, it's really important for people to keep these every five year things or whatever goes on because, of, like you said, the people who weren't born at that time there are other people who didn't live here or who don't understand why we think it's so very important, how horrible it really was I mean, some people live in countries where bombs go off all the time and yeah, 3,000 people don't die in a day but still, you know, they have really hard lives and, but that isn't the real that is not what America was or wants to be used to, we don't want to have to live like that and so that's what we're sort of trying to keep from happening
0: A lot of people don't know that um, among those who died in New York City, many people were um, law enforcement for um, the um, Port Authority. So the Port Authority was responsible for the World Trade Center security. Nobody really understands how that works, but it's kind of unusual. But because it was a trade center, the Port Authority police lost 34 you know, uh, members of the force, so they're like they're pins for just that group, you know. And they're and and I would get all these different uh, ceremonies that, that different organizations would have, and and so I've saved all those pins. I have them in my home office, um, on a little pad, uh, and I was just kind could look at each one of them and think, okay, that was that event, that was that event, and the ones at Pentagon were probably the most memorable because we had like three different events at the Pentagon: one early. One sort of um, uh, midterm or something, and kind of the final one, and um, the victims were sort of divided into the law enforcement, firefighter type victims, and the sort of plane passenger, uh, building occupant victims, and and they tended to have uh, sort of separate opportunities. And the more you got to know these regular folks, like the folks on the flight. the more moving that became because they were sort of um, less high profile than the law enforcement agencies and what and, and, and the special service. Because, you know you I'm going to talk about a, a firefighter in my speech who was working that morning his shift ended in Brooklyn prior to the um, or just at the time of the attacks and he literally was in his car headed home and he heard on the radio what happened? And he turned around, went back to Brooklyn to a station, and he actually jumped on a truck, leaving the station to head to um, Ground Zero, without even his full uniform on because he just wanted to help. So he jumps on that truck. That truck goes into the World Trade Center Tower Two and is never seen again. So this guy just. Out of duty, just automatically just goes jumps into where you could have avoided it altogether. Um, that kind of heroism is amazing, and we we, we need to especially honor that but then these other families that just lost somebody who was a passenger on a plane you know um, by the way, you know the barbara Olson story she 's on flight seventy seven out of um, Dallas and that um, ended up coming back to the Pentagon. Um, she was a Department of Justice. Um, the wife of our, what, Ted Olson, the Solicitor General of the United States. He wasn't yet, was he confirmed? He might have been confirmed for his job at that point. He might have been in the office. So Ted Olson is in the Department of Justice building. He's one of the people that has to leave. And meanwhile, his wife is on the plane that um, had gone to the Pentagon. And she was heading to Hollywood. She was going to be on Bill Maher's show because she was a, um, at that point, she was a, uh, she had been on my transition team for DOJ, but now she was kind of in private practice and often on a talking head on, on television programs. And so Barbara Olson's death was a big story, and uh, I knew Barbara very well. So one thing that I've been reflecting on the last couple of weeks is um, because the anticipation of my talks, how to describe the specialness of the victims, because there are victims every day, and. Um, and so how do you rank the victims of 9-11 versus um, a young girl who's killed in a drive-by in Chicago last night? Or, you know, they're victims, again, of all sorts, and, and um, the Afghanis and so forth who might be suffering now. Um, why should we remember them more than others, right? And I think one thing that has occurred to me is, um, and it's sort of a picture of the gospel to some extent, um, Al-Qaeda hated all Americans. Al-Qaeda wanted to kill if qaeda could have if it had been feasible they would have killed everybody but they couldn't but they wanted to kill as many people as they could so imagine the three of us we're sitting here together and someone wants to kill all of us but only kills Brenda's. so in a sense Brenda has taken her life has been taken and ours hasn't And and she's, in a sense, kind of sacrificed her life on behalf of the rest of us. Because those were the people they did get. And they were no more deserving to get than any of us. But they got it. And I think that makes those victims especially important for us to remember. The mom that dropped her child off at daycare and secretary and gets into the Pentagon just before, you know, her time she's supposed to show up at 8 a.m. and she's working at her desk and she never gets home to see her children again. She gave her life that morning in service and she was the victim that all of us were supposed to be. So um, we, we need to remember them uh, in a kind of a particular way I think. And, uh, and again the vigilance and so forth is, is all part of it too. But But there is something about looking back and honoring someone's um, sacrifice. Whether it was willingly given or not, they became the sacrifice for, for us that day. So.